IBC Talk, the Insurance Business Canada podcast. This episode is presented in partnership with CNA. Flood risk in insurance is a broad topic and one that requires regular updates for insurance professionals. In this episode of IBC Talk, we're joined by Louis Vatrit, Vice President of Engineered Property with CNA, and Markham Sandalak, Senior Risk Control Consultant with CNA, as the two tackle everything from the state of the flood insurance market in Canada, to flood risk management practices across the country, to new technologies and the impact of climate change. Hello, welcome to IBC Talk, the Insurance Business Canada podcast. I'm Bethan Moorcraft, Senior Editor at Insurance Business, and in this episode, I'm going to be taking a deep dive into flood insurance with the help of two of CNA's experts. I'm very lucky to be joined by Louis Vatrit, Vice President, Engineer Property, and Markham Sanjulek, Senior Risk Control Consultant. And together, we'll be tackling everything from the state of the flood insurance market in Canada, flood risk management practices across the country, technology and the impact of climate change. So let's get started. Louis, Markham, welcome to IBC Talk. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you on board. Louis, I'll I'll come to you first. How would you describe the state of the flood insurance market in Canada at the moment? Well, four four points I'd like to put across on that is, is, you know, due to the many challenges uh, that my colleague Markham is going to speak about in a few minutes, there's been greater scrutiny on flood exposures and insurance coverage uh, for flood in the past 12 to 18 months. However, that level of scrutiny varies from one insurance carrier to another. Um, some insurers are looking at exposures very carefully, um, ensuring they're getting adequate rates and deductibles to protect their capital. One of the other important things is the accumulation of flood exposures. So your book of business what do you actually have in your book? So meaning how much limit, and on top of that, how much limited insurer might be deploying within a certain geographic area, for example, is a key factor that the industry needs to be looking at more closely. Um, so if there's an event, um, you know, you, you don't want to have an accumulation and, and hurt your book. Thirdly, the insurance market uh, does seem to take in closer, a more closer, consistent approach uh, by being cautious in managing flood exposures carefully and also focusing on cap modeling, uh, which can be challenging due to the constantly changing infrastructure, which affects flood mapping in Canada and in actually anywhere. Um, and fourthly, another complicating uh, factor is that claims in Canada have been unpredictable, as we've seen in the Calgary and Toronto uh, rain events, the deluges. And again, if, you know, 2020 saw Fort McMurray event. Uh, managing flood risks became even a more urgent priority for the Canadian insurance industry. Thank you, Louis. Um, I think with with flood, historically, one of the biggest challenges in the market has been around take-up rate and and sort of getting people to actually buy flood insurance. Um, So how would you describe that take-up rate in Canada today? And what are some of the challenges around that? Well, generally... Um, the larger companies are purchasing flood insurance, um, but for mid-market and small businesses, as we call SMEs, it varies. Um, raising awareness around these exposures to help the take-up rate uh, would work to benefit the industry overall. Um, the premise of insurance is to, to share the losses of a few uh, amongst many. 
you know, a larger pot means a better ability to uh, to manage the claims and the pricing. One other thing I'd like to add is it is possible to significantly reduce the risk of damage to businesses uh, and homes, for example, for extreme rainfall events, if communities, governments, and owners take action. Um, considerable knowledge exists around the design and management of buildings and infrastructure to reduce the risks of damage from, for example, basement flooding and sewer backup. There's, you know, in our industry, there's a strong consensus that the best practice, that there are best practices reduce the risk of damage. Everyone knows that and everyone agrees on them. The current challenge is to encourage more communities, government and owners, homeowners or owners of businesses to take action. An example would be, you know, the current risk of damage to homes or businesses from sewer backup can be mitigated or eliminated through the installation of a backwater prevention valve on the sewer outlet of the uh, of the home or the facility. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, Markham, I'd like to sort of tap into your risk control expertise to, to build on that a bit further. Um, you know, how, how strong is Canada's flood management in terms of sort of preparedness and resilience uh, on both a national and state scale at the moment? Uh, yeah, if we, if we look at the national scale first, uh, typically flood mapping activities like flood mapping, uh, emergency preparedness and recovery fall within the provincial jurisdictions, which is then further delegated down to the municipal level. So it, it generally creates a tiered system of flood management responsibility with emphasis on the local exposures and local interests. Um, you see the national uh, prominence there for the big disaster and the recovery efforts where uh, additional resources are required to, to basically mitigate loss. Uh, so they're more on the, the recovery side of things, whereas the province is, is much focused on the prevention and the initial incident control. So as a result of several large events over many, many decades, there have been national plans produced to try to identify the highest flood risk areas. And um, so federal resources were pumped into identifying those areas, conducting modeling studies, improving earthworks and other infrastructure to, to provide protection against those high risk communities. Um, again, those exercises, they go back uh, many, many decades. Uh, the infrastructure that we currently have in place is often a result of those studies. And, um, you know, they've served well over a number of, of decades. But uh, as they age, ongoing maintenance and increased development uh, has seen, seen those systems being taxed. Uh, we also have the influences of, of climate changes and, and other factors that are, are going to be testing those, those uh, infrastructure projects. Um, what we find at the provincial level, again, is, is they're very much focal, focused on their local interests, right? So the provinces delegate down to the municipalities and the municipalities, again, have to assess their risk and, and come up with plans and mitigation to, to manage that risk. And, um, you know, it's those assessments and those risks that are done at the local level that, that sets your flood maps for, for developments and, and setbacks and other, other issues. Uh, the main thing you find with, with, with the ever tier you're dealing with is the flood protection is always dealing uh, more with a reaction to past events as a baseline for trying to predict the future. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of uh, 
you know, really good flood risk management practice uh, somewhere in Canada, perhaps in a province or in a, in a local area? Yeah, I have, um, I have two, actually. Um, let's talk about uh, Lower Mainland BC. Uh, right now, if you, if you look at flood maps for Lower Mainland BC, uh, you see that they're developing all their flood infrastructure to a, a one in 200 year event. And that basically derives from a, a major event that happened back in late 1800s. And that really set the development for what the flood levels were going to be, where development was going to be permitted. Uh, and over, over time, as, as increased development occurred, you know, additional studies required that dikes and other protection devices be erected to allow that development closer to water to, to combat that, that one in 200 year event. Uh, you know, those infrastructures are very, very detailed. They're, they're, uh, subject to a large degree of, of maintenance. Um, the challenge has always been that as there's more and more development, people can impinge onto those, those uh, engineered structures or over time, uh, you know, climate has changed, water levels have risen. There's other environmental exposures that uh, may exceed the design capacity of those original structures. Uh, another good example is uh, the city of Winnipeg, where Somewhere around 1950s, they suffered a catastrophic um, flood of the downtown area, which prompted the, the city and the province to uh, install a floodway that would redirect water around the city, which, uh, again, continues to serve it uh, on a yearly basis to, to mitigate flood. Um, in that instance, I mean, the, the focus around flood mitigation seems to be around the populated areas, obviously, and, and in the city of Winnipeg, the uh, floodway basically protects the city, but it does create exposures to those to the south and to the north where that diverted water has to go somewhere. Uh, you know, in, in very recent years, 1997, we had another major, major event that, uh, that did see the southern properties greatly affected. And as a result of that, it, it did prompt changes to the um, building codes to basically add protection to those exposed communities because of some of the mitigation measures that have been taken uh, can wind up increasing exposures to others. So the problem with these, um, these flood structure is they're very much regionalized. So you have to be concerned with what your local community is doing, how that may impact somebody upstream or downstream of you. And, and the absence of a national program, um, you know, that we have a very finite view of, of the issue as flooding being a local issue. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, you know, are there any other common areas of weakness, perhaps, um, Markham, across Canada uh, that you've identified? Yeah, as, as Louis mentioned, um, a lot of our, our flooding exposures and, and risks aren't coming from the traditional flood risks that we would assume, like from riverbanks overflowing um, or from coastal or storm surge, certainly those risks are there and, and, and they're always prevalent. And we've done a basically decent job of identifying those highest risk areas and putting measures in place. Increasingly, claims are coming from other sources of flooding, overland flooding, basement flooding. And again, these are, are increased in frequency and volume just by the development and urbanization. Um, you know, a lot of our city centers where, where people are, 
are centered, has old infrastructure, often combined sewer systems, which just isn't capable of dealing with increased rain events or those surge events that Louis mentioned in uh, Toronto. Uh, you know, weather, seasonal weather patterns has a big impact on, on how water is going to pass through communities. As you increase the development, you're, you're reducing the capacity for the ground to basically accept some of that water. So the more we build, the more we're creating a problem of, of diverting water and it has to go somewhere. So that's one of the, the bigger challenges is, is addressing those localized flooding events caused by rain events or diverted water. Uh, Got it. Um, so, you know, one of the big uh, ideas, I guess, in, in flood insurance today is sort of how to use technology and incorporate technology to monitor, manage, and, you know, hopefully as well predict flood events to, to mitigate their impact. Can you tell me a bit about that, Markham? How are you seeing sort of that progression and, you know, where can technology play a role? Uh, yeah, from from the predicting side, uh, again, provinces and federal jurisdictions, they do have devices in place that they've traditionally used to monitor and uh, predict flood levels. Uh, for example, you have river gauges that are, are monitoring uh, how water is rising and how fast it's moving at various points along a, a river reach. You have weather stations that are monitoring precipitation amounts. And again, they can report on current conditions, which can signal dramatic changes in events, right? Uh, but again, those are those are pretty short-term, uh, immediate, almost responsive technologies. Uh, what you also see, too, is, is kind of interesting is with the prevalence of... of uh, handheld smartphones and things like that. Uh, just about everybody has a camera and a GPS in their hand. And, and there's often um, the use of crowdsourcing to identify actual conditions that may be in areas that aren't monitored by these these devices. So first responders and, um, and, and other people that are monitoring flood events can basically get real-time up-to-date information about how floods are developing and and where the highest risk areas are and what infrastructure and people are at risk. Again, you know, the, the models that we all use are, are basically a imperfect representation of what we think will happen and, and the physical environment around us. But the variability of, of weather and uh, nature just makes, you know, trying to fit these things into a, a, a model very, very difficult. We're always going to be challenged by what really happens in an event. Um, we also have, you know, at a federal level, we have remote sensors and, and an increased use of aerial platforms for imaging and for data collection that really help on the response side of managing flood events. We can see where water's going, what's impacted, uh, plan for contingencies. Uh, but again, the biggest thing that that individual businesses and and uh, and uh, people can do is basically look at their own localized site and, and take the precautions necessary to ensure that they can take that water that is coming down either as a rain event or, or other source of water and, and be able to divert that and control that uh, away from their properties, install the flood devices, etc., to, to give them a level of, of protection. Uh, you know, there's also some low cost technology available for monitoring and, and providing alarm 
But again, these are, are usually generated towards the response rather than prevention or, or prediction side. Excellent. Thank you. And Louis, I'll just come back to you quickly um, with this one from the insurer standpoint. You know, how are you seeing insurers, uh, insurance organizations engage with technology and how are you seeing them encourage their own insureds to, you know, make use of some of the tools that, that Markham just described? Yeah, good question. Um, so it's important. So we, we, we set up a strategy um, and we really need to, we put a lot of thought into the strategy and, and how much capacity we're going to deploy, where we're going to deploy it, and what are our exposures if we put capacity in, in that in that particular area. Um, I think one of the things is, is in regards to, you know, monitoring flood is, as Markham said, it's, yes, you have to look at the history, but you really have to look ahead because if you look at flood and just, if you were to monitor it by the losses in the industry by dollar amounts, that, that that's not really a, it is a measure, but it's not a, in my mind, it's not a good measure because of the changes in infrastructure. So the example I'll use is let's use Fort Mac because really Fort Mac, what it, what it did was it, it, it really woke, woke up the industry to, to, to flood again. Got a little bit of sleepy after 2013 with, with, with uh, Toronto and Calgary, but Fort, Fort Mac event was, you know, 500, $520 million event. But if you look at it, since 1835, there's been 15 floods there and 14 of them have been ice jams. So probably back in 1835, there wasn't a Canadian tire and there wasn't restaurants and there wasn't all this other infrastructure that was there. But so as, 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 as communities develop, you know, the, the infrastructure develops and so damages, the same flood happens, but there's just more infrastructure there. So the damage comes up. So you really have to look ahead and say, okay, listen, in Fort Mac, not, not to pick on them, but in this area, um, this, this is what could happen. So we're, we're comfortable deploying this much capacity in, in that. And, and then we also look at our, at our modeling and we stay very, very disciplined to our modeling so that we don't, have an accumulation. We, we, we sell our product um, to, to protect people. Um, people have claims, and 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 that's that's our business. Um, but what we what we don't want is we don't want an event where we get this huge accumulation, and and it just um, you know it's 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 very damaging you know to to our book of business or to our capital. So we do use these um, devices, and 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 all all the all the metrics we can get in. Um, to, to, to better, um, I guess, underwrite write our book. Yes, thank you. Interesting. Um, so I guess one of the big topics around flood, um, really around sort of catastrophic weather in general these days, is climate change. Um, so, Markham, I'll, I'll come back to you. What impact is climate change having on flood exposure across Canada? Um, yeah, on, on climate change, it's kind of a, a unique situation uh, because when we think of climate change, we think of it to be something that's recent, and, and it really isn't. It's When we think about climate change and, and how things are developing, uh, there's a couple of impacts. One, uh, we have the cyclical nature of certain weather patterns, right? El Nino, uh, El Nina, 
we have uh, solar flares. All of these things impact weather, and they're they're quite cyclical. You know, even hurricanes are typically on a on a fifty year cycle of of boom and bust. And uh, you know, a fifty year cycle is 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 pretty long. Uh, a lot of people you know, uh, will not have a, a lot of experience of, of numerous events in that area. And, and the climate change, we have seasonal variability. So we, we can't take what happened last year as a benchmark for what's going to happen in the future. We have to take a much larger look. And uh, typically 30 years is kind of a span that uh, climate uh, modelers use to determine the overall trend. So it, it basically, you know, if you compare two or three years, you're going to see things that may actually be the complete opposite of the 30-year trend. Uh, but generally, we're seeing that there's a rise in temperature and a decrease in the amount of snowpack. We're seeing higher intensity rain events. Uh, you know, we can we can forecast that there'll be a rise in sea levels, which, um, you know, all of these things will impact seasonal water flow peaks and valleys. Uh, we see winter precipitation extremes are are likely to increase. Uh, we're seeing a lot more water in the form of um, you know rain being distributed around as opposed to being locked in the the ice caps, etc. Uh, the great unknown is basically some of those social and um, development issues around you know how quickly we're contributing to greenhouse gases. And, and the forecasts and the modeling going forward, basically, uh, you know, there's a number of scenarios. There's a high, medium, and low. Uh, there's a number of, of factors that go into these models, and uh, you can have conflicting results come out of the models. So generally, the approach taken is that all of these models are, are basically aggregated and analyzed and, and then put out there for the scientific community to try and explain to uh, the general public what it all means. And, and it's, it's a difficult, tall order for them. The, um, the problem we have is that, uh, you know, the models are, are just basically mathematical representations of, of what we've observed and what we think may happen. And, and we really don't know if one model is better than another. So it, it becomes the challenge of, of which model do you trust or, or which one are you going to, um, you know, going to bank on as you, you look at how you develop your your, your climate impact. That, that, that's interesting because, you know, as you said, there's, there's multiple different models. It's a hot topic at the moment. Um, but I guess the, the reliability and usefulness of, of that is still sort of uh, in, in, in progression, I guess. Um, how, can, how can insurance organizations perhaps make better use of some of that predictive data to manage flood risk? Uh, I, th I think the the primary thing is just to to understand what it is you're you're basing your your models on, right? Like getting behind what goes into those models uh, and select the best possible model that uh, that fits your situation. Um, you know, there's a number of products out there, just as there's a number of models, and uh, it really depends on on risk tolerance levels. It depends on uh, where you are. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know. Where you are in, in, in the world depends on some of the availability of, of models for you. So, for example, the U.S. has a very sophisticated model, uh, you know, operated by a government agency uh, that every individual landowner, basically, if they want flood insurance, uh, they have a process that they need to go through. And it, it is very well documented 
for most areas of the continental U.S. In, in Canada, our population is far more concentrated into limited number of, of settled areas. And once you're outside those major metropolitan areas, the population density and the exposures uh, decrease dramatically. So the need for that type of, of structure and, and climate assessment and all these other models uh, diminishes accordingly. And, and that becomes the major challenge for insurers is, um, you know, the models are generated at a, at a global scale. And then when you try to scale those down to a regional view, it becomes uh, very difficult and, and the ability of science to, to describe that in terms that the insurer and the insured can basically understand is 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 difficult. The language is uh, complex, and uh, you know it, it it really is hard to communicate down to the general public. We all just have that general feeling that things are getting worse, but we can't quantify how worse is that. <laughs> so, are you seeing any progression, sort of within Canada around? development of models and things like that it obviously it sounds like a bit of a challenge as you just described but you know is, is progress being made uh, yeah absolutely there's there's some federal initiatives that have, have been launched recently that are basically trying to set a standard that um, that everybody can agree on and use so for for example in in bc they use a 200 year recurrence period uh, most of the most of the prairie uh, Provinces and Ontario use a hundred year, so there's a bit of a divergence about how big a flood exposure you're willing to accept. And again, a lot of that is based on the existing infrastructure. Um, the the availability of, of some of the tools that we have, like the, the software and the the computer processing speed, has made uh, modeling much more affordable at the municipal level and at at individual level, if you will. The, um, the ability to get data that actually describes the, the physical environment is much easier to obtain at a much lower price point than trying to have to physically survey large tracts of land, which is how these flood maps were, were done, basically in a manual fashion. So the, the tools are definitely uh, more readily available. The, the cost to, to obtain that modeling information has dropped dramatically. Uh, it just comes down to to uh, whether you know we, we keep at a provincial level or or try to get a uniform standard and, and, and as I mentioned before things are typically geared around regional points of interest so I forecast that uh, you know we see these uh, municipal areas have whole departments now dedicated to to uh, making these predictions and monitoring these things because it also ties into their infrastructure challenges they have with managing stormwater. Uh, the two are, are very much linked and they're not separated. Yeah, okay. if, if I could add to that, I think, um, you know, local governments, um, they need to invest in, in, in waste and, and stormwater management infrastructure. You know, to, as, as Markham says, with historic uh, events, but also the, the prospect of even more your more intense events in the future um, and, and it is happening and the example I'll use is is Winnipeg um, you know or Manitoba so Manitoba had a severe flood in, in 97 and, and, the, and the floodway worked uh, for, for, for the city protected it um, but 
um, they invested money uh, into the floodway and um, um, put a lot of money into 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 that project by expanding and the capacity of it. So you know they they luckily they you know good insight back in the fifties to build it. Um, they're 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 maintaining it and you know they're looking out they're looking out the front windshield saying. If we don't build this thing bigger, this is what's going to happen. So, you know, to me, that's a really good example of, uh, of um, you know, managing um, the, the go, go forward. Yeah, it does. It certainly seems like there are some great examples there across Canada, which is sort of promising uh, as we look ahead. And there's certainly also lots of room for growth, development, innovation within the flood insurance market. So, Seems to be pretty exciting. Um, I think that's actually a perfect place to end our discussion today. Uh, so, Louis Markham, thank you very much uh, for joining us on IBC Talk and for sharing your insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And thanks also to our listeners, of course, for tuning in. Uh, I'm Bethan Moorcraft, Senior Editor at Insurance Business. Uh, remember to keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts, webinars, and IBTV episodes. We've got lots of exciting content coming your way. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of IBC Talk. For more from the experts at CNA, visit them at cna.com. That's cna.com for more. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.